Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this roundtable discussion, uh, my sister Kay Kellum and I are going to be talking about the Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer film from 2007. Correct. We just watched that. This will, of course, be a spoiler-filled discussion about this film, the preceding uh, Fantastic Four film, probably the one from 2015 as well, and who knows, maybe some Captain America stuff, Avengers stuff, whatever it comes to mind. Probably some cartoons as well, because I have to say, as we were watching all of this, I was thinking, you know, that. That's not the way I think of Silver Surfer. <laughs> I think. How do you think of Silver Surfer? Because well, I mean, I've been reading the comics for for decades and stuff, so I've got a a pretty good history with the character. I mean, I haven't read every appearance. I'm I'm not old enough to have gotten the original stuff from Fantastic Four forty seven through fifty when it was coming off the rack or anything. And but I've read you know literally hundreds of his books over his own title and stuff and his other appearances in the Fantastic Four. How do you know the Silver Surfer? Only from the cartoons, really. And I was going to ask you, what should I have honestly known about the Silver Surfer? Because from the cartoons in our childhood, what I remembered was he was a good guy. Which cartoon? The Fantastic Four cartoons? I guess. I mean, I just have vague memories. Okay. And maybe, maybe it's I'm mixing him with other characters, but I just, I don't remember Silver Surfer and bad guy. This was very much along the lines of his origin with a little bit of the the ultimate version tossed in of Galactus and also uh, a story from many years later of the the wedding of of Reed and Sue. I liked this origin of a character. I I found it a compelling, very much a I'm defending my world the only way I could think to. Mm Mm-hmm. He basically, in his origin in the comics, had bartered with Galactus of spare my world and I will find you others to, to satisfy your hunger. Yeah, and I I liked that devil's bargain. He was a very tortured character. Mm-hmm. Well, and I liked how they found that out when Sue was talking to him versus everybody else just fighting him. Yeah, and I think that was part of why I liked it for him as a backstory mm-hmm. because I think if anyone else had gotten that information from him it wouldn't have felt genuine and i liked the reason he opened up to sue the reason he protected sue um i thought that andre brower's military character was amusing in ways he probably wasn't meant to be almost stereotypical movie military guy yeah and just the i hate the science guy I thought it was funny they set him up as the football quarterback versus the nerd. And I loved the nerd's comeback pretty late in the movie of, yeah, but look at my life. I think that line, if I recall stuff correctly, was taken almost verbatim from one of the Ultimate Fantastic Four comics. But it was Reed giving it to Nick Fury. Interesting. And they had thought about having Nick Fury in this, I think, Mm. according to the IMDb page. Interesting. But I think it worked well not to, since he later 
really just a year or two later in the Iron Man films, Mm -hmm. was a major character. They did a good job with the the uh, the origin of the 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 Silver Surfer. Galactus is more of this cloud thing. Galactus didn't make a lot of sense to me. I'll admit he doesn't make a lot of sense in the Ultimate Universe. But frankly, you can't take this gigantic humanoid with a, a funny tuning fork helmet looking thing from the original comics he can't really use him in a movie yeah you're right you know and there was an aspect of the shadow over i guess it was saturn or whatever that was very reminiscent of that silhouette uh, it's interesting because that shadow over saturn at the very beginning of that i was thinking this is really not a great image of Saturn and I don't know what they're going to do here but I have a nagging feeling I'm not going to like it and the whole rippling effect at Saturn I just I wasn't a fan of the visuals there neither was I because I couldn't tell how much of Saturn with the rings and stuff was left at the end of it and if you're coming towards Earth the, the solar system's a reasonably big place you don't actually pass through every planet on the way down yeah so yeah it, yeah We'll take that with a grain of salt. I do think the effects for the Silver Surfer were really well done. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I asked you very early on if it was just me, but it was really reminding me, and maybe it's because we saw Terminator 2 fairly recently, but of that um, that the, liquid, the metal. liquid metal. Well, that's the only other character in, in kind of movies that has kind of that all silver look to it, and particularly the way... In one shot, he went from being on top of the board to kind of phasing through and being on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And the way he would go through objects and stuff, very reminiscent of the T-1000. Yeah, and it's an effect I just thought they used really nicely several times. Yeah. Uh, I wish they had spent a little more time for people like me who just have absolutely no science mind on the whole... Victor Von Doom has a way to gain control of the board, merge with the board, that part. That goes back to another Fantastic Four story, and I'm not even sure which issues off the top of my head this was in, but he, Doctor Doom, kind of sort of teams up with the Silver Surfer for the sole purpose of robbing him of the power cosmic. Interesting. I mean, it it kind of worked for me, it just didn't make sense to me. If that is well, it does, makes but sense. you can't really give it a scientific explanation because it's it's sheer science fantasy. Well, yeah, I'll agree with that. But it was just kind of a okay. He's using magnetic boots to step onto the board and glue to it. But then I didn't even take it as magnetic boots, just his usual armor. But then it goes back to Reed saying he must have this pulse thing to sync up. Yeah. And that's what it was. They could have given a deeper explanation. Yeah, I just, and well, and the way he seemed to become extra powerful and extra uh, armored from it, mm-hmm. I just wasn't really sure what was going on. But how hard would it have been when, when Reed said that for Johnny or Ben to say, I, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And then for Reed to start spouting off on that between before Sue or somebody says, hey, okay, enough, let's 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 go fight the guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been totally in character, added maybe 20 seconds to the film, and oh, okay, I get it. Well, and the other thing I wished that they'd touched on, even if it was just in that start to hit on it and cut him off manner, was that uh, Johnny got 
his neck grabbed and taken into space, and suddenly he can transfer powers with anybody after his encounter with him. Whereas Von Doom gets a pulse from him, and now he's healed. And I wasn't really sure, okay, what's the difference in how they're affected and what happened in their interactions with the Silver Surfer? Clearly, the the, the cosmic power, not that they call it that, but that's what he has in the, the comics, is what was imbued into kind of doom and healed him. The whole bit with, with Johnny, I think, was just a, a very much creative license, but it allowed them to reference yet another character and story at the end, that of the uh, the Super Scroll. One of the early Fantastic Four villains were, were Scrolls, shapeshifters. Ah, uh, okay. Now, in the first Avengers film, they've got the Chitauri, mm-hmm. which were kind of sort of the, the the ultimate versions of the, sh- the the scrolls except without shapeshifting which they're shapeshifters you take that away they're just aliens mm-hmm. but the super scroll was one that had been engineered to be able to replicate all of the fantastic force powers because uh. they trounced the scrolls left right and center mm. so when we get johnny at the end Having the stretching, the flame, the invisibility, and the the rock-like thing powers. Yeah. That was kind of their nod to that character. Well, I thought of the four members to have him be the one who had all four powers. I liked it being him because personality-wise, I thought he carried it off the best. Oh, yeah. And was the most entertaining to see in that position. But the whole bit early on when... Johnny and Sue swap powers. That yeah. was well done. That was w- very well done. Um, when Johnny and uh, Ben were at the pub and he accidentally set the dart on fire and they're commiserating, I would have liked John to see Johnny actually swap with Ben for the night and give I ben was expecting that too. The date with Alicia. That to me would have been a really show Johnny maturing and being a good friend. Well, it's funny because that kind of is is similar to a story they did. It had to be after this film, actually, where, and I think Mark Wade was writing the book at the time, but they had established, no, it was probably uh, uh, Jonathan Hickman. Anyways, whichever writer, and I forget, I apologize for getting it wrong because I forget, but they've established that Reed had figured out how to cure Ben. Mm-hmm. But it's too late. He can't permanently cure it. But what he can do is give him one day a year he can change back. Nice. So on that day, I think it was Johnny, and I forget the details. It was a really great issue where Ben just gets to be a regular guy for a day. Yeah. You know, hang out with Alicia or go hang out at the park. You know, I forget the specifics, but it was very much a character issue. And it's something that if you hadn't been reading the book for, for decades and stuff, you kind of don't get the big deal. Yeah, yeah. But if you have, I mean, the payoff on that was just terrific. Well, there were quite a few ways in which Johnny, again, grew up during the movie, just as he did during the first one. But that was one scene and moment where I felt the writing let me down because I thought they were building up to... I thought they were too. Here, let me take it for the night kind of a deal. Yeah, you're so lucky to have her, to have someone he recognizes, yeah, if I had that, I'd want that, and then he falls short. I think he should have offered, and Ben should have turned it down. 
And that would have been really great in its own way, yeah. Because he could have turned it down for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is he could have burst into flames at the wrong time. Yes. Yeah. And it could have been very bad for Alicia. Um, and, and Carrie Washington did a terrific job in this film as she did in the previous. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love how she's kind of the counselor for each and every one of those characters. There's aspects of her version of Alicia Masters that is kind of prototypical or whatever of uh, uh, Olivia from um, from Scandal. Scandal. Yeah. Yeah, she's very much a, a fixer and a I-can-help-you-understand-where-you're-at character. Here. Somebody with the insight, who in this case literally doesn't have sight. Yeah. But can, can really see to the heart of the matter. Yeah. And, again, the way they, they work, the character was great. She does a, a wonderful job in that role. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things from the 2015 Fantastic Four film that I don't want to say was missing because I don't think it was needed, but wasn't in it. Exactly. And until I saw it in the, these two movies, I didn't realize how much it could add. Mm -hmm. But having seen it, I was like, wow, that just opens up so much more of the Bing character. Classically with the Fantastic Four, you've got the, the four members of the team, but you only have a handful of regular, recurring, I don't want to say critical, but really important supporting cast. Okay. Alicia is prime among them. Matter of fact, I would say if you only had one other character, it would be her. I would almost put her at the uh, the Alfred to Batman level. She's the outsider that humanizes the group. Yeah, definitely. You know, because you don't really have that uh, sort of a character around Johnny, Reed, or Sue. Mm. To a degree, they don't need them as much. Well, and it's funny because Johnny and Sue each humanizes the other mm -hmm. with their relationship. But I keep coming back to in these two films, the 2005 and 2007, Sue is really getting the short end of the stick in terms of let's put glasses on her so she'll look smarter, but make her very unscientific at the moments when we could give her some dialogue that might count. That's part of why I like the Sue in the, the newer Fantastic Four film better. Yeah. She's a much smarter character. Yeah. She's much more of a match for Reed Richards. And I think Jessica Alba does a good job in the role. She does great with what she's given. I just she wish... She just isn't given enough. Yeah. Or, or the, not, she's not giving good stuff to a degree. She plays angry very well. She gets yes. plenty of opportunity, more in the last film than this film. Well, in this film, I loved how her character dealt with him walking away from her, for instance, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I thought there were a lot of things like that. This Sue Storm is a very strong, powerful, forceful character. Yeah. And in the comics, Sue did not start that way, but has definitely gotten to that, be that way. And part of it was the basic power escalation issues. That comics tend to go through. Mm, I can see that. In so much as, well, she could just turn invisible. Well, geez, that's kind of useless. Oh, well, now she can do force fields. Mm -hmm. well, now she can use force fields to fly. Well, now she can, you know, and it got to where she arguably is the most powerful member of the team, you know? So. Well, and I think that was reflected in the 2015 movie. She was the strategist, she was the this, she was the that, she was the other, and it was like the, well, you've kind of undermined Reed as the leader, whereas in these two, he was very strongly the leader who definitely needed 
every member of his team. Yes, and I thought they worked more cohesively as a team as a result. Yes. And he needed, he was the leader, but he needed them to help focus. Yes. And the the newer film is based more on the ultimate versions. And in that, Sue Storm, um, Sue Storm was a, a, a biologist. Mm. She was the one who was figuring out how they had changed. Mm-hmm. And all of it, again, it had the think tank kind of a deal like they had in the movie. Um. So almost all of them except Ben were kind of the super genius types or whatever. Well, and that was another thing I noticed here is in this one, they don't out and out say it, but Ben is clearly higher IQ in this version than in the other ones, than 2015. He was, he was an astronaut uh, or whatever in the first film. Yeah. I mean, at least a, a fighter pilot at the very least. He's got a, a, a definite background, not just he played ball in college kind of a thing. Yeah. Here he's recognizing the difference between comets and meteors based on looking at pictures and this, that, and the other. And he's, he knows some of the science, etc. Well, and Whereas, also the people stuff. Yes. He began the way he dealt with uh, uh, Sue and Reed in the first film. Yeah. You know, seeing the, the interpersonal stuff going on. So they've definitely treated him as he's strong, but that doesn't mean he's got to be an idiot. Yeah. And to me, that's that's one of the fun things about the the thing, the Ben Grimm character, is he's very obviously the muscle of the team. But he's also figuratively the backbone, the, the heart, and the, the conscious of the team. Well, I liked in this one, I mean, I had qualms about the, they're flying uh, a commercial plane, and I was teasing you, you know, isn't he too heavy for the plane? Uh, but I liked in the airport when the kids won autographs and he's rubbing his fingers together to make dust for them because he can't grab a pen and sign an autograph. Oh, I didn't catch that. And I just thought, well, that's such a cute little touch. I liked when he had just grabbed the two and held them up. Yes, for the photo. Um, I, the other thing I liked about that, the way he was in this film is, I mean, he, he actually had a full wardrobe. Yes. Suspenders at one point. Uh, the, the the tuxedo for the wedding on up and down. But the tuxedo, I get, but just the regular everyday clothes. You know, they had solved those issues for him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a minor point, but a big thing in his day-to-day life. Well, they had moved forward an unspecified, unspecified amount of time. Mm-hmm. But enough that the top of the Baxter building now had the four. They completely redid the Baxter building, uh, the upper few floors, because what I thought was that nice set piece from the last film, nowhere to be found here. Yeah, yeah. but I liked the way that the glass for the skylights and everything made a four. I loved that. I thought that was good. It was just there's very few shots where you would see that well. Agreed. Um, there was part of me that kept wondering during the big wedding where the helicopter was flying around bugging them, why doesn't Sue just make herself and either the immediate wedding party or the area invisible? Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely adored the cameo of the person left off the invitation list. Yeah, Stanley, that was, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and it's funny because that also harkens back to the comic book wedding. Where Stan and Jack, I believe, were the ones trying to get in and couldn't. That's and the funny. creators of the 
the team. That's funny. I don't know if you're aware there is a joke going around the internet started by Stanley apparently that the reason the 2015 Fantastic Four movie didn't gross as much as expected is because he didn't do a cameo. Uh, not the only one he hadn't done a cameo in, but yeah. But uh, going back for just a second to the the top of the building with the four. Yes. What I would have liked for them to have done is reflect that down into the the, the floor plan mm-hmm. to where you've got essentially the four going. So you've got a triangle and a little kind of offshoot at the base of the four. The little area there could easily have been the lobby. Yeah, the elevator area. Then you've got one area for, for Johnny, one for Ben, the, the, the longer part of the four for Reed and Sue. That triangular central area is kind of a common area. They could have very easily worked that into the floor plan in a way that at first you don't notice it, but then you kind of pan up and you've got the skylight kind of look to it. Yeah. And then you realize what's going on. It's like, wow, that that's kind of cool. Yeah. When during the wedding, when the helicopter was flying around and we saw uh, power going out around the city and coming towards them, I kept thinking, you know, time to cue Johnny because I'm thinking he's the only one that can fly. He can go after the guy. At this point, I'm not even thinking about the helicopter. But I'm thinking he can go after the guy who's incoming. Then the helicopter starts coming down. And now I'm really thinking, cue Johnny. He can fly. He can help the helicopter. And what fascinated me was he was the last one to get put into action. That the other three were very well used to help with the helicopter before he was needed. That was one of those, that was one of two areas where I thought, the writing was a little, I don't say convenient, but didn't reflect how those characters should have acted. It, Johnny should have just been on the spot and basically, here's the guy on the surfboard, I'm after him, kind of not to give it a second thought. Agreed. But the other one that really hammered that home of just they're doing things because it's convenient for the story was when they get to London. The, the, the eye is starting to fall over. Sue's dealing with that. Ben's dealing with that. Reed's dealing with that. Johnny's just standing around doing nothing. Well, and I wondered about that in part because Johnny had been told, don't move until you see the Silver Surfer. The whole thing, though, plays out. They rescue the eye. They turn around and, oh, my God, the entire Thames has been drained. Yes. Yes. And they were none the wiser as it was happening. Yeah. Well. Wow. Talk about taking your eye off the ball. The other thing that got me with that eye scene was that they're all, except Johnny, using their powers to rescue the eye as it's falling. And I can't think, keep thinking, can't Johnny weld it back into place? And it's not until Johnny basically loses his cool, flies off ahead of his cue, and swaps powers with Reed that Reed yeah. welds it back into place. And I'm like, Shouldn't you have thought that sooner? It was very much a, they didn't want to use Johnny because of the power swapping, and Reed lost his temper with the whole Johnny thing. there. It was just a very awkward scene that had to play out for the script, so the general would get pissed at them, not trust them, and bring in Von Doom. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was needed for the plot. Yeah. Not reflective of how those characters probably should have acted. 
And I don't know that, you know, Johnny, because he can fly, could have saved the helicopter back at the wedding scene. No, but he could fly. Why fly through the eye? Yes. Well, that was just, I took that as a, he's just lost his cool and air rush and not thinking. He, he may not think, but he's, I don't say smarter than that, but his instincts are different than that. Yeah. He, he doesn't go, take the hard way to do anything, you know, and that wasn't even a matter of him showing off. So it, th- those were scenes I thought, while fun, while entertaining, mm-hmm. while well done, were in service to the plot of the story, not, again, not how I think the characters would have and should have gone through those scenes. Yeah, and see, I mentally, I just keep going back to that helicopter and a, I didn't see Sue being the first one to step up to rescue the helicopter as I it fell. I thought Reed should have been, because we see the helicopter having that problem. The first person we cut to is Reed. If you're cutting to that character, I'm expecting that character, the hero of the story, to be heroic. But what can... He could have stretched, grabbed the thing, and put it down gracefully. I was going to say, does he have the strength, is my question. I don't think he needs the strength. It's already moving. He just needs to channel it. Interesting. Okay. See, because I was... He had the strength to, to keep the London Eye up. Well, see, and that, that baffled me. I kept waiting for, no offense to Reed, I kept waiting for, you know, him to pop. Him to buckle or whatever. Him yeah. to stretch. Yeah. He may have slowed it down, but he shouldn't have been able to pull it back up. Yeah. Well, but Ben was down at the bottom, and I mean, it was three of them on the yeah. London true, Eye. True, But Fair point. Fair point. But I kept questioning the London Eye, too, and that's how I've taken yeah. the time to think through. It did take three of them. Um, but then Ben against the uh, tail rudder of the mm-hmm. helicopter to protect Alicia... Reed reaching out to grab people the helicopter was coming towards. And there again, the whole time I'm thinking, but I just keep feeling like Johnny. Johnny's the one most likely to jump into the fray and he's not. Why? Yeah. So there were aspects of that that didn't play true, didn't ring true. Again, not a catastrophic failure or whatever, but they could have tightened some stuff up there a little. Well, and there again, at that point, I was just wondering if it was me not knowing the characters or if it was the characters. You've seen the films. Well, yeah. You know everything about these characters there is to know. Well, yeah, agreed, according to the films. I mean, they may not ring true to the comic book versions, but these aren't the comic book versions. Yeah. They're based on them. But they have a different backstory, different characterization, different motivations. I mean, not radically different in this case, but they're they're their own thing. Yeah. You know, I did notice some differences subtle in the uh, the makeup effect or whatever for the thing. But, I mean, just to make the prosthetics more usable or whatever. But it looked good. I think he looked a little better in the first. It's funny because I thought it was hilarious when they switched the prosthetics to Johnny. Oh, I thought that was great. Yeah, that that worked well. Um, apparently, for the first film, Jessica Alba had dyed her hair. Mm. In this one, she's wearing a wig because apparently the dyeing of the hair was not good for her hair. Mm. Okay. Um, but then it also goes back to kind of the the glasses and the. There was something about the way her attire was that looked like they're trying to make her seem like a professional, uh, smart, intellectual, or sexy or whatever. In, a swing and a miss kind of a deal. Well, and in some ways, they played her almost more as a bookkeeper than an actual scientist. Her saying, you know, the city is billing us for three squad cars destroyed during such and such. And like she's the business manager. Yeah. 
And I think that's where it began rubbing me wrong. Mm-hmm. As a, you know, she's not just the detail person for the group. I, I felt having seen the 2015 one first, she's an intellectual equal to read. She, she can be and should be, but in the comics, she's not. Yeah. And particularly when you go back to the early comics in the 60s. Yeah. And see, I'm not a product of the 60s. No. So I don't want a character who is. And that's my my fault, I think. But in the comics, she's also something of the mother hen of the group. And we never truly kind of get that here. No, not quite mother henning. I mean, clearly caring about. And I, I think they played well with a very, I don't want to call it a subtle subplot, but a low-key subplot. I'll call it the whole, I want a normal married life. I don't want... Yeah. This and then at the end, the but it took the four of us together to do this. Well, one of the things that makes the Fantastic Four unique in comics is that family aspect of the team. Yeah, they've swapped out members of the team periodically, but it's one of those things that's always going to snap back to those four. Mm -hmm. They are the Fantastic Four. Well, and at the end, they did a real nice job when Johnny was no longer swapping powers with people of, you know, he and his sister could finally give one another a hug mm -hmm. and stuff. And that was very much a, a sibling reassurance as well as bonding moment. But while they were doing that, Reed and Ben were giving one another a hug with everything's okay now, brother. Well, because again, those two have been best friends since college. Yeah, and you I know? I liked that it's like two sets of siblings with a marriage uniting them feel. The great thing about having a team that only has four people is you can always define every character in relation to the others very easily and just in pairs. Yeah. Because if you think about it, Reed and Ben have a very clear relationship. Reed mm -hmm. and Sue have a very clear relationship. Reed and Johnny have yeah. that. You know, with Reed being kind of the, the I don't say the elder brother or whatever, mm -hmm. but more the, the, the pseudo big brother father figure type, mm -hmm. you know, you can do better, Johnny, kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, and you've got certainly a relationship between Johnny and Sue, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the family one, a very clear relationship between Johnny and Ben. Yes. You know, best friends, worst enemy sort of a deal at times. And then probably the, the least defined of all the relationships is between Sue and Ben, and even that one's pretty well defined. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, but it's because you've got so few moving parts, Yeah, you can really build that up. And when you have any three of them, you can define that scene both by the, the pairs you've got and the person you're missing. Yeah. Well, and it was interesting because to me that when... Uh, Sue and Reed were thinking about if we're married, we go mm -hmm. off and settle down. It kind of forced Johnny and Ben, I don't want to say to tone it down, but to make peace in a way. Yeah, we may be the only ones left kind of a deal. Yeah. Now, that's funny because that whole line, though, is referencing another period in the comics where Reed and Sue basically took off for the country. They, they stepped back from the Fantastic Four in the 90s. Ben took over as leader. Johnny was there. They had, who else did they have at the time? Uh, a female version of the thing. Maybe, I forget if it was She-Hulk. It was probably Crystal from the Inhumans. Um, but they've had a few other people kind of rotate in. 
But it's one of those things over time, sooner or later, Reed and Sue got to come back. Yeah. You know, you can take the the Ben Grimm character, kick him out to the West Coast Avengers, but eventually he's going to come back, you know? Yeah, I would say of all the Marvel movies we've watched so far, this one did the best job of making sure you knew for the main four superheroes, both their real name and their superhero name. Yes, I think they did a very good job on that. They also balanced every character getting their moment in the spotlight, Mm -hmm. the team as a whole, and also kind of where that team sits in relation to the world. Yeah. And it gave it a sense of scope and scale. I mean, this was taking place literally all over the world. Mm Mm-hmm. And it kind of felt natural for that to happen. Yeah. Whereas a lot of, of, of particularly Marvel films, you know, it's, it's all in New York and that's it kind of a deal. Yeah. Which, you know, not a problem, but- Shows a different level of world building and positioning of the characters within that world. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the fallings, uh, failings in my mind of the, uh, the the Shield TV show. Yeah, is yeah they bounce all over the place, but it never really feels like they've truly gone to these places. They talk about it, we see it there, but really, it, it could be Puerto Rico, it could be you know uh, Brazil, it could be you know anywhere. It, it it feels as if it doesn't matter other than they've, they're a global thing. They've got to bounce around the world or whatever. They may as well all have been taking place in the same city or whatnot. I watched a TV episode recently that was filmed back in the 80s, and it said it was taking place in Rhodes, Greece. And what fascinated me was having recently been to Rhodes, mm-hmm. Greece, I recognized streets they were driving down and mm-hmm. the harbor they were sailing into. And it wasn't just shots to establish scenes. I saw the actors in the car going down the street and knew they'd gone there to film that episode. How many times, though, have you seen over the decades films or TV shows, more likely TV shows, set? in a particular place, and you recognize that place as clearly not being the place they're saying it is. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's somewhere out in the hills of, of Southern California. You know, that's not what Texas or wherever looks like. Yeah, yeah. Whereas here, I honestly couldn't care less what force they used to film the Germany scene in. They sold it as Germany. They sold yeah. the other places as China, as, you know, wherever. Yeah. You know, and there are certain things that are a little inexplicable, like... Where exactly were the Fantastic Four flying from at the beginning of the movie, and and why were they there? Yeah, yeah, and why were they flying coach in the end? Now, one of the things they had held off in as a surprise in the film Mm -hmm. was the Fantastic Car at the end, the 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 flying car thing they've got. The thing where I called out is that a prop from Star Wars? Yes, the land speeder. There you go. Um. They did a good job on it. it. It rang true to the comics. It's different than the comics. It's a little cooler, but they've gone through different versions of it. I liked it. I I was surprised how much I even liked the break apart aspect. Mm-hmm. That's something that's always been a uh, a classic part of it because they'd get to the point where, well, we've got to split up. Sixties typical comic book technique. You've got a team, split them up. Yeah. That way they can all go have their moment in the sun and come back and yeah, whatever. Um, but I thought that was one that was well used uh, and, and well executed on. Yeah, I liked it. A little weird when they first split the, the thing into the three segments, you know, because Reed's flying. Okay, he knows how to fly. We know Ben knows how to fly. 
Sue, however, is like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> well, and I liked that at one point it looked like Sue had a problem and was about to hit the Great Wall of China and Reed yeah. just reached out and yanked her back on course. Yeah, definitely happened. It was it was a fun scene, but there are a few of those things. It's like, wait a sec. You know, that, that doesn't quite make sense. Likewise, when the Silver Surfer, you know, is finally been convinced, let's save this planet, mm. does that, kind of supernovas or something, and then suddenly the entire threat that was about to engulf the entire planet and still have four or five or six times the mass left over to do it again, suddenly is all vaporized. Yeah. The planet's okay. Well, we've established that the power comes up through the board and he poofs it out. And that was a technical term, poof. And so he pulls it up from the board, but he kind of holds it in himself in a squat until he... He lets it overload or something. It was yeah. a little unclear. Now, in the comics, mm -hmm. the board is a manifestation of his power in extension of him. Hmm. Okay. Up until recently. Mm-hmm. And this will be some spoilers for the current Fantastic, or not the Fantastic Four, the current Silver Surfer series that's about to end as we go uh, in the middle of Secret Wars here in 2015, just to date it for anyone listening to this later. In that, the surfboard essentially has its own quasi-sentience. Mm -hmm. Because the Silver Surfer has picked up a companion, and she had heard Norin, the Silver Surfer, do the, to me, my board. So she thought the board's name was to me. Mm -hmm. So she would talk to Toomey and it would ref she would look at it and it would change her reflection to show what it's thinking kind of a... I'm like, really? Because the whole thing really started to feel... I mean, here you've got a guy who's traveling space. Mm -hmm. He's got his, his, his method of doing that, you know, in this case, the surfboard. But he is, has got powers beyond belief. He's known throughout the galaxy. He lands and he can instill fear or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he picks up a, a Earth human companion not to be confused with doctor who thank you even you picked up on that oh i was about to ask you where doctor who came into this the entire take they're doing right now is good but it's very doctor who you know because the tardis is something of its own character you know whereas the version they did here should it have been the source of his powers or not hey that's as much reasonable as anything else well he was definitely weak when he was away from the board but i couldn't tell how much of that had to do with torture it they still had the jamming device going on that's true but he was also weak after the torture while uh dr doom had the board because again he was cut off from yeah. his source of power and that source of power was also what's kind of keeping him alive Interesting. Okay. And I loved how he went from sir, uh, silver to sort of a... a uh, uh, rust? Not rust, but a, a matte finish, kind of a gray. Yeah. Um, they did they did a really good job with that. I thought his scenes with Sue were excellent. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Lawrence Fishburne is the voice. Uh, great job there. Yeah. He was originally cast as the voice of Galactus. They thought the Silver Surfer would not speak. Interesting. Then they realized, maybe that won't work. Maybe we should have him speak and not Galactus. Yeah. I thought that was a good choice. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I can see where for the first half of the film, they thought the Silver Surfer wouldn't speak. There was a good while before we even saw the Silver Surfer is anything but a, a, a you know glowing speck or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But no, I I can't imagine this film with the Silver, Spur, Sur, uh, Silver Surfer not speaking. 
and Galactus speaking would have just been because they treat Galactus more as a force of nature almost, mm-hmm. uh, which arguably in the comics he has always been, but a very humanoid appearance of that force of nature typically. Whereas again in the in the the Ultimate comics, he's more of this cloud of mechanical, you know, devouring things. Hmm. So I can see why they went the way they they did on all of that. I mean, overall, I thought this was a really fun film. I thought it was well executed. Uh, the scene uh, at the beginning of the credits where we kind of see the Silver Surfer kind of waking up after the battle and, you know, getting his, his surfboard and kind of presumably flying off, set the scene for a Silver Surfer film if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. They clearly could have done a third film in this franchise if they wanted to. Yeah. I don't think this did well enough to justify that, which is why they stopped. Or at least I think that's why they stopped. I'd, I'd have to go do some research on that. But this was one where, prior to the current Marvel Cinematic Universe, they did some good films. They did. They did these. They did the uh, the X Men films, mm-hmm. and they did the uh, the Hulk film. Because and at some point we'll we'll go through those all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had really established that their characters definitely could work well as film. Yeah. You know, and again in this case they had a really good cast. They did. So, I I enjoyed this. When we started watching it tonight, I just hadn't realized how much of it I'd forgotten. I mean, I saw it, I think, when it came out in the theater, but, you know, and I I had the DVD, and I think I probably watched it when I first got the DVD or whatever. But that would have been, again, 2007-ish. Yes, I hadn't seen this one before, and I was intrigued by, you know, the uh, mention of global warming, a few things like that. It seems like whether we mean to or not, we put these various things into films that date them. Yeah, well, I think every every film, aside from period pieces, is, is of its time. Yeah. Well, it's funny because so much of the, the gadgetry, if you will, like their car at the end and stuff, seems so futuristic. And yet hearing them talk global warming the way they did, it didn't sound quite as futuristic suddenly. I'm sure there will come a point where most of the contemporary films of this time feel woefully dated by everybody having these these smartphone cameras they're using, mm. you know, that whatever it got replaced by. Exactly, yeah. You know, but you can't do a film without that in the current day. Yeah, well, and this one, they had uh, the ear comms, but they were having to tap them on to speak. They weren't voice activated. Yeah, I think that was intentional, but... But just one of those little things I noticed, because most writing has just moved into this magic when they need to be voice-activated, they're voice-activated, and when they don't, they aren't. Yeah, there is a certain uh, Hollywood technology level that's convenient. Yeah. Which, you know, on the one hand, I'm okay with, but is always fun to see how that plays out sometimes decades later. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff in Star Trek... You know, was just wildly unbelievable at the time, but is now long since science fact in everyday usage. Well, and some of it was inspirational to make it everyday exactly. fact. That's how it became fact. Yeah. And there's some other stuff, the transporters that still, yeah, it may never happen. But it could still be inspirational. True, true. And again, what I liked about this film was they definitely have a science fantasy aspect with the cosmic radiation and all of that. And even the rules for how that work are a little fast and loose, but that's the premise. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, they try to at least 
you know, I don't say play true to science, but treat with the respect of science. Yeah. You know, trying to go through a more scientific process and trying to have some internal logic to it. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. But, you know, they they had some fun with some stuff. Again, the whole touch, boom, suddenly Ben's cured and Johnny's not. You know, the touch contact in your DNA is getting rewritten instantly. Okay, that's fast. But they stayed consistent with it. They did. And actually, I loved it there at the end when it was no longer happening. And Johnny had no way of knowing that. But Ben had given him a pat on the back to congratulate him. And Johnny was the one who was now leaping away with, hey, be careful. I don't want to hurt you reaction. No, I think it was the, hey, be careful. I don't want to be like you reaction. (laughs) Well, there could have been that too. But again, uh, good actors, they they had fun with it. They sold those moments really well. They did. So I kind of wish they'd gone a little further with this franchise. I do too. I do too. You know, it's one where these characters, the uh, the X-Men universe, uh, those could have all played well together. Same with Spider-Man. There's Corporate politics aside, there's really no reason all of this couldn't have laid the foundation for the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a, a story sense instead of just a, a, a proof of concept sense. Yeah. But because of the corporate politics, we may see Spider-Man, I think we'll see Spider-Man getting involved in the, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not holding out big hope for Fantastic Four or uh, the X-Men anytime soon. Yeah. I hope that changes. Yeah. So anything else? Does that pretty much do it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>